and I'm the host of the Feminist City podcast series. The Feminist City podcast series is offered by Vidhi Center for Legal Policy and looks at all things urban from a feminist perspective. I'm extremely delighted to welcome the guest today, Dr. Govind Gopakumar, who is an associate professor and chair at the Center for Engineering and Society at Concordia University. Dr. Gopakumar works on a variety of issues that concern cities, urban governance, politics of mobility and transport. And he's interested in the work of political expression of urban infrastructure. And I really want to thank you, Dr. Gopakumar, for taking your time out and speaking with me today. And I'm, I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Sneha, for inviting me to this um, really interesting uh, podcast. I'm also excited to talk about my work and I'm happy to talk about and reaching out to a, a wider audience with my work. So, um, like you have introduced, uh, my name is Gobind Gopakumar, and I'm uh, Associate Professor and Chair of um, the Center for Engineering and Society. It's an interdisciplinary department in Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. And I'm happy to talk about my work. My work largely centers around, like you have, you've said, around the, the politics of infrastructure, primarily in Indian cities. Currently, I'm, I'm really interested in the kinds of mobility issues that our uh, cities are facing, primarily with a great degree of automobile dependence that one finds. And I am looking at how that has happened and how those can be changed with a focus on, on Bengaluru. I have uh, done fieldwork in Bengaluru and I have tried to engage and meet with several constituency stakeholders uh, who have an interest or have uh, a position with regards to how mobility uh, in the city unfolds. Uh, so I'm a resident of Bangalore and this podcast actually looks at Bangalore quite a bit, primarily because as, as a podcast that engages with the urban, it, it's very natural to start with the city that sort of I live in and, and work in. And a lot of our listeners are also from Bengaluru. So, so on the podcast, my attempt had been to sort of make political the things which seem apolitical or neutral on the face of it, in the sense of urban space that seems as if it's based on very neutral technical or technological principles that have very little to do with, you know, very the objectivity and the neutrality, so to speak, which is, I think, what we all take for granted until we start looking closely. And so for me, this vantage point of this perspective came from a feminist engagement with the city. And and I sort of also emerged when I started thinking about women's safety, because women's safety is like a issue that is alive in the context of the city, not just in India, but across the world. And like every day we hear about a case where there is a very grotesque, you know, incident of violence. And often the solutions seem to be centered around, you know, surveillance or increased policing. But the tide or the, the intensity of violence does not seem to, you know, obey. And in this context, I started noticing the way in which the city itself was an entirely hostile terrain for a woman who steps out of her home and even, you know, within the home in another context. So I was interested in sort of hearing about your trajectory in engaging with the city and urban infrastructure from a political perspective. And you talk about your interest as being in the political expression of urban infrastructures in Indian cities. Could you just sort of explain that for our listeners? 
Sure. Um, uh, that's a great question, Sneha, and, and I, I'm happy to clarify that. And I think you, you certainly have hit the nail on the head by saying that my interests are on the, the political expression of, of infrastructures. I think one of the things that we take for granted is our urban infrastructures. In, in many ways, you know, when you either switch on a tap, uh, switch on a light or turn on a tap, uh, you expect the services of infrastructure to immediately present themselves for us to use. And, you know, these are things that we take for granted in our lives. And there's an entire kind of technological, primarily, you know, technological infrastructure that runs behind in order to make sure that these services are immediately available for urban residents or many urban residents. And so urban infrastructures, especially of water, mobility, uh, electricity, are primarily understood in very you know technological uh, ways that there are systems of or networked systems of technologies that provide these services and and so because of that understanding i mean they're mostly understood as being products of engineering so if you look at how they're organized they're um, in many cities and not just in indian cities they're organized by by institutions by organizations that are predominantly staffed by engineers because they're considered to be the experts in in the in the development and management of these infrastructures and that i think has created a sense that these uh, these kinds of infrastructure agencies should be managed predominantly on these kinds of utilitarian kind of principles and that i think has had consequences and i think wh- one of the the consequence that that has uh, that it's had is the kinds of design choices or the kinds of organizational development that has been associated with these these particular infrastructure agencies have not attracted a lot of attention and because they're they're seen as you know they're functional uh, yeah. entities that are uh, exist to provide to provide the the key function of providing the the water supply or the 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 mobility service and that we don't really actually scratch deeper to try and understand what are the consequences of these kinds of choices that they have made in how these institutions, organizations, technologies, systems have been uh, have been created. Uh, and so, as a result of that, there's been a uh, the intent behind these organizations have acquired a very predominant kind of technocratic approach, where you know technology is there to solve issues associated with the provision of infrastructures because technology is considered like you have said also considered to be neutral considered to not have the kinds of biases that other forms of decision making may have and that i think you know there are uh, there's a lot of research that has been done in in several spheres by you know several individuals that we don't want to get into right now but we've shown that that's not necessarily the case that there is a lot of politics that's embedded within the design of technologies be it you know the mobile phones that you're using or you know um, even uh, simple gadgets like the coffee maker or they usually have certain choices that could have been designed differently if they had considered different groups of people as being the 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 users of those technology and i think something similar is also there in the context of urban infrastructures because i think this kind of overarching kind of utilitarian approach with regards mm. to you know benefiting the greater common good is all well and good but unfortunately there are groups of people who kind of fall through the net uh, these systems 
and and it's and those have those are consequences that I think as a society we need to look at. Uh, I think there's also in the context of mobility. I think there are some how this politics has come about has acquired certain systemic aspects which I think we need to kind of inquire Absolutely. into, and that my work tries to inquire. Absolutely. I think um, I first came across your work uh, actually through a podcast episode that you did, I think, with the New Books Network with Dr. Sneha Namarapu. And when I was writing my paper, I was just so fascinated and I used some of, I, I cited installing automobility as, as one of the ways in which, because it was very fascinating to me to think about mobility in, in different ways when I was doing this research. Because as you rightly pointed out, one thing that I think what even though technological solutions or a technocratic way of doing it on paper sounds good. The fact of the matter is, I don't think that there is a single city in the world today where women will feel comfortable going out for a walk at night. Like, I, I mean, it's just one of the, it's a very simple thing. Can a woman go for a walk at night in a city? And the answer just seems to be repeatedly, no, not really. It doesn't seem to matter whether it's a city in the third world or like the global south, or if it's a first world country like the UK or the USA. There is something about the city that is one not really designed for people to walk in generally, but particularly for women um, to be safe or to be able to access. And one thing that I found very interesting about your work and I wanted you to sort of talk a little bit about is you talk about automobile-centric design, right? And you talk about how cities are being built for automobiles rather than people. And how this has a way of, you know, marginalizing vast swaths of the populations in the city, not just women, but different varieties of, you know, vulnerable groups in the city. And you talk about something called automobility. And I was wondering if you could just sort of explain these terms for our audience. What do you mean by automobility and what are the consequences? And if you could just also shed a little light on the history of this. Have cities always been made for automobiles? Have there been, is there a recent shift? Because now it almost seems ubiquitous. Like I can't imagine a city where you don't have roads or the imagination of a street as a place where, you know, where you, there are some sections or pockets in the city, but our imaginations of what is a city is usually, you know, these huge flyovers with like many cars that, yeah, like these are really beautiful shots from the sky. So I was just interested in sort of hearing about uh, your experience working on this. Sure. Uh, I'd be happy to. And that in many ways is the core of the work that I do. So uh, I think this this notion of automobility, I think, uh, tries to address something slightly different from automobile dependence, and and which also is in many in somewhat different from motorization. And I think there are some allied terms, but let me start with automobility. Automobility, as I understand it, and this is a term that I haven't coined, and I think there's there's again there's a, a group of scholars who who identify with within the social sciences who identify with what's called the mobility turn where they try to look at the fact that our lives in many ways are intricately connected with all forms of mobility be it movement in the sense of transportation but also other forms of movement but also they're also interested in what kinds of meanings and and understandings that we have of movement and how they have come, certain kinds of understandings have become predominant in our in society and how we have organized our lives around those, those kinds of movements. One such uh, notion is the notion of automobility, which 
speaks of uh, uh, this kind of an interconnected system, uh, an interconnected system comp- comprising several different uh, aspects. So the social, cultural, economic, uh, institutional, technological, industrial kind of aspects that are so closely interlinked and in, uh, intertwined that they have created this very stable system that has reordered, that has reshaped uh, several things, especially cities, but several other things like our streets and in many ways our countries also. And we, in, you know, the, the art, archetypal kind of country that has been reshaped is, is the United States of America. In many ways, their identity as a nation has become so closely intertwined with the automobile in in several ways in the in the notion of freedom that you know often is touted by many Americans, the car and the automobile are very closely uh, expressed in that. You can you know the freedom to be able to drive and free, freedom to be able to go wherever you want whenever you want you know, mobility on demand in many ways. And that that freedom and the fact that the, the state has, uh, that the government and, and the state has created facilities and infrastructures that allow for the expression of that kind of freedom is what makes, uh, in many ways, United States of America so unique in the, in the countries. And there's a scholar who's written, a, a, a historian uh, who's written this, this wonderful book called The Car Country, uh, which speaks of this identif- close identification historically and how it has emerged between the car and, and the identity of the American. And I think there are several other historical works, primarily in the, in the Western context, which yeah. have looked at how this close identification between cars and countries or cities and, and streets have come about in those particular kind of situations, even contested situations where people have tried to resist the change of cities or streets to make them hospitable hosts for automobiles. There's another historian called Peter Norton who's written this really interesting work called Fighting Traffic, which looks at the turn of the early 20th century and how streets in many American cities looked like Indian streets uh, some years ago, um, uh, which were filled with you know people and all kinds of other movements, and how that that process of has uh, through in the course of 20, 30 years, how that shifted towards uh, an understanding that streets should be reserved primarily for automobile movement and other forms of movement were considered and penalized as jaywalking and you know those ki- those kinds of so there are, there are interesting histories associated with it primarily from the western context and unfortunately in the indian context it's my sense and maybe there are there are some historians who have done uh, work i think in uh, who've looked at i, I forget uh, there's a, a environmental historian who's who's also looked at the issues of traffic in colonial India and how the British had these particular uh, uh, ideas of to civilize Indians in order to make them uh, use and and behave on streets. And, and so there, there have been some interesting insights from the pre-colonial context, but I think there's been much less attention to what how our cities uh, in the contemporary tra- times have become trapped within this kind of car-centric, car-oriented approach. And I, I as, uh, as a recent a person who grew up in India and then recently moved to uh, the West for higher education, and my frequent trips back to India, I've been exposed to the, the kinds of 
enormous changes that one finds in Indian cities as they have tried to reshape themselves in order to make movement of a certain kind um, more common. So movement, especially of automobiles, so much more easier through flyovers, through other mechanisms that allow automobiles to have free flow uh, in the cities. And I think that's where I like to kind of begin thinking of my work. But I think one point that I missed about automobility, which I think is key to the understanding of automobility, is that it's not only an interconnected system, it's also a system that exercises a particular kind of domination, either mm. of roads or, or cities. And, and, and it's that understanding of domination, of the politics that's associated with it, that I'd like to focus in my work. Okay, that's no, this is this is fascinating, and and actually, as you were talking about changing modes and interconnected systems, and what you described of criminalization of jaywalking, I was just remembering how that was actually tied back to the automaker's influence on how the street is being recast, not as a space for pedestrians but for cars, and this is actually one direct way in which law and jaywalking criminalization is the use of law as an institutional tool to in some ways, violently change how the character of the city and the character of the street. And mm -hmm. interestingly, in Bangalore, in January 2022, like less than two months ago, there was actually a drive to find jaywalkers in the city. So there were traffic police. I, I, I'm going to link these articles for the readers and the readings that accompany this episode. So they actually said, oh, we will be finding... So police were going to, they conducted drives at specific locations and violators were going to be fined 10 rupees because they wanted to prevent deaths because there were the highest number of road accident deaths. So it's very interesting because on one hand, road accident deaths are now being tackled, not just say in a country like the US, but in Bangalore by saying that this is an issue of pedestrian safety and pedestrians need to figure out a way to be safe rather than cars. I was also curious if you see the same kind of something that say happened in the US 100 years ago, like slowly the same ideas being introduced in Indian cities. Like I was, when I saw this, I thought it was a joke. The idea that jaywalking can be a thing that like Bangalore police will actually, you know, uh, deploy and do in a city where there is zero pedestrian infrastructure and with the, you know, the kind of mobilities that exist in the city. Yeah, that, that was just something that sort of came to my mind. And the second thing I sort of wanted to also ask you is, I think when I, what I found very fascinating about your research was also that instinctively automobile ownership does not really seem like a very contested issue. Like in the sense that, okay, anybody who can can buy an automobile, women drive automobiles just, just as much as men. Now with the gig economy, with Uber and Ola, it has created so much, I don't know, employment, actual employment for people. But I think it was when I started doing my research for the report, uh, Making a Feminist City, I started looking at mobility patterns for women and girls in particular. And what I read that a lot of study after study that was conducted in India pointed out that most women did not actually rely on private vehicles. They were using public transport, cycling or walking. So the majority of women who were surveyed were reliant on non-motorized transport facilities. And even within families where there was one automobile of one private vehicle, it was usually the man of the house who had the claim to using the vehicle. So it didn't even matter if the woman belonged to a home with or which owned an automobile. Very directly, ownership of car ownership in the city and the people who actually owned cars and used and you know used the car. 
suddenly started becoming smaller and smaller like in the sense of who are these people who are actually using these cars and why and i was just interested in if you could speak a little bit about how does this impact see these populations in the city what what is the impact on say a domestic worker who uses a cycle to go to work and and if you could point out or or if you could explain why it's important to think of this as a political contested space because i think this was something that was very new for me in in, in my research to understand that what was happening in the city was not really being done on some neutral scientific principles but very clearly an exercise in power and hierarchy in just new and like alternative like sophisticated ways so i was just curious to hear of your opinion on this no that's a that's a great question and and something that i have to think also about how to answer because i i think it's an imp- it's a very it's vitally important and it's it's got some several layers associated so I, i'm trying to kind of unpack that while yeah. i i uh, i address it so I, at yeah. one level i think the the question that you said about how law has been deployed in making uh, making it easier for certain kinds of claims on the road is is certainly very true and and so my work addresses that in thinking about questions of citizenship yeah. and the kinds of citizen claims certain claims are considered important and how those claims are supported yeah. through a variety of Uh, be it social media, be it road design, be it you know, if you look at the Twitter feed and the and the Twitter dashboard that the the traffic enforcement has, it's almost directed entirely towards the automobile owner who the the motorist who wants to drive on the on the city and look at you know what kinds of congestion is available, what what is there on a you know the live feed with regards to congestion, all of that is targeted towards motorists. at the same time you know you you look at new uh, developments of infrastructure you know there are these great flyovers that have been created in bangalore and then you look below the flyover at the pedestrians or at other modes of transport and there's very you know there's scant attention for the rest i mean you you make these massive investments to allow automobiles to to zip by an uh, an intersection and then everyone else can you know navigate the broken pavements and and the potholes and and uh, and what have you on the roads in order to get from point a to point b or even just inhabit the 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 street and you know for vendors to sit to sit in shaded places and and sell their wares all of this is not uh, clearly of very little attention to how our streets are being redesigned uh, and so all of that kind to me at least uh signals uh, a certain understanding of citizenship of how citizenship is being created and mobilized on the street now the other point that you had which i think is other uh, points that you have made uh which uh, are also closely intertied uh, intertwined with this which i haven't quite addressed in my work uh but i think are are very important is the question of who gets to use automobiles and who are the the kinds of people who are using automobiles and what uh, and like you said in a household level it certainly is the uh, given that automobiles are uh, and people have written about this of uh, the kinds of status associated with ownership of automobiles and in a in a society like uh, india i think automobiles have 
acquired an enormous kind of prestige associated with it. And that's why, you know, when uh, when the Tata brought about the Tata Nano and everyone thought that our streets would be flooded with Nanos because they were so easy to buy, they were much cheaper than regular automobiles. The fact that that didn't really take off was closely related to the, the status prestige issue of, you know, what, what do people associate with their automobiles? Uh, and uh, especially in nuclear families you know who gets to access that status object is is closely tied to the kinds of relations that exist within the household between different members and who controls decision making or access to resources at the household level so i i think that's something that i think sociologists have and uh, and anthropologists have looked at and i think there is some research in the indian context that has tried to address that uh, my research, on the other hand, has been much more interested in the kinds of systems of, of infrastructure and governance that have been put in place in public spaces in, in the city, especially on roads, and, uh, and trying to understand how that has marginalized certain groups of people. But I, I think those are, I mean, they're not uh, entirely separate questions. I think they're, they're intertwined. I mean, even... Uh, the kinds of claims to space, I think, also have are gendered, and they're also related to caste questions and and yeah. ethnicity and maybe even language. So I, I think there are there are those certainly those kinds of qualifications associated with it. But yeah, I mean, I think what was extremely interesting for me is it never occurred to me that the fact that automobile centering the automobile or sort of making policies around a particular form of the use of the city results in the displacement of all other forms, right? Like in the sense of just that it was also maybe, I don't know, maybe it wasn't something that I was thinking about clearly. And when I was reading it, I was just like, oh my God, yeah, like something's been happening to the city over the last few years. And something about how difficult it, it was getting. And as I, I, I don't own a private automobile, I don't drive, so I'm reliant on either your auto or like the cabs or public transport or just to walk. And how that, I don't know, for me in my own personal experience, it never occurred to me that this difficulty that I found in navigating the city was by design. It was always something that I had taken the city as a, you know, it exists and you just have to accommodate to it. But the idea that the city was actually designed to benefit some groups was a very new and, and, and realization that, oh, I might not necessarily belong to such a group, was a very interesting, you know, insight for me. The question I sort of had for you is, I think, something that a lot of our listeners will be interested in, is the question of decongesting Bangalore. The problem of traffic in Bangalore is something, which I think is something that you can take for granted. Like anybody who lives in Bangalore talks about the weather. And they talk about the traffic. So I was, and, and I know you've written about decongesting Bangalore. So could you tell us what you have found? What is what does your research tell us about how do you solve the traffic woes in Bangalore? Um, well, that, that's a tough question because I think you know traf, solving traffic woes in Bangalore is is a tall order by. You know, the, um, it's, but I, I think what my research has tried to do is that it's related to the kinds of solutions that are being offered in trying to address it. So I yeah. think decongesting Bangalore is is often not as straightforward because in many ways approaches to decongest Bangalore are contributing to the congestion that one finds in Bangalore. So it doesn't seem obvious, but 
often our solutions that we uh, uh, we prescribed to the issue to solve an issue often make the issue worse this kind of counterintuitive approach is what is often referred to as lock in where situations are locked in and persist despite our best efforts to try and you know can break that lock in that's one of the situa- one of the things that one finds in in bangalore is that automobility has locked itself in in bangalore and so kind of disentangling that lock is going to be a tricky process and i, I there are several factors that have that have i think um uh, uh, allowed for this lock in to uh, come about in the first place and i think one of the first things is to look at history and uh, and so in, in in my book um installing automobility i have tried to look at some factors now these are not you know uh, these are not exhaustive factors they're not like you know these are the only things that uh, have brought about this lock in but i think there 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 seem to be some important factors uh, um, so one is i think the the particular historical context of understanding of infra of congestion so i think if you look at the history of bangalore right from pre colonial times and especially since colonial post independence um and in the current times there have been particular understandings of congestion and how these have been addressed and in addressing them i think these have created certain effects in our contemporary lives so i'll i'll give you an uh, an example so if we take the the example of congestion in the post independence period it was marked by the sense that we could plan our cities through master plans and this is something that i think uh, in the in the nehruvian period of post independence we sought to do in all our cities after the delhi master plan was created uh, karnataka also adopted the town and country planning act and that became the basis for efforts to uh, to plan bangalore and and other cities in in karnataka but it has also been uh, that you know this planning process in uh, karnataka and this understanding of congestion how do we decongest our cities has meant in the planning process two things one thing has been with regards to creating particular kinds of planning strategies associated with uh, how uh we need to create space for um so either with regards to indices that uh planning indices uh with regards to how much space is available for individuals in their habitation or what kinds of land use is allowed in particular regions you know all of this has been understood within the planning process and embodied within this and or the kinds of uh, understanding that exists within this kind of planning process is that our cities should have a certain understanding of you know how much space is available what kind of habitation is considered good for for the individuals there's been another aspect to how the planning process has been uh, developed and that that is related to how infrastructure development should happen and how it should be governed through particular kinds of agencies so what one finds is the development of specialized technical bodies so which have been called parastatal agencies yeah. and these parastatal agencies are specialized bodies that have uh, that are not in many ways related to municipal the municipal domain and have been 
created by the state government yeah and has been staffed primarily with technical personnel personnel who come with either an engineering or a planning background so examples would be the bda the bangalore development authority or bwssb or the bmtc all of these are specialized corporations state owned yeah. corporations that have been tasked with managing infrastructures in particular ways and so it has created a particular means of how infrastructure development and management happens in in the city you know it's also related to the fact that there are multiple entities involved in managing infrastructure at the you know at the city level there are there's the mahanagarapalika the bangalore mahanagarapalika mm-hmm. but also there are all these specialized agencies that are involved in infrastructure development and that has created issues of coordination it has issues of you know who has who controls a particular turf who has um so those have been some kinds of consequences associated with it in more recent times i think congestion has been understood primarily as the need for infrastructures that allow for greater fluidity of movement so you know be it and this happened in the post liberalization period when bangalore became and continues to be uh, india's silicon valley in in many ways where you know where the kinds of development paradigm that we have with regards to uh, the jobs that we are creating the economy that we are supporting is re- is very closely tied to the service sector where um, you know information technology and business process outsourcing all of that found a ready home in bangalore but in creating that ready home in bangalore we've had to create a situation where these kinds of uh, industries would feel that they are comfortable that they uh, they have a city that is uh, supporting the needs that they have for this very high tech employment Uh, and so the this sector has had an what would i say um a larger than than usual kind of stake in the kinds of bangalore affairs where particular sectors of the middle classes who have benefited from this approach mm-hmm. this industrial industri- development approach has have had a larger say in bangalore affairs and how governance in the city should happen you know uh, the fact that our city should globalize should be seen as being uh, as a world class city that is comparable to the cities of singapore or or london or new york in their infrastructures in the the ease with which people can move from place to place or do business or travel internationally and all of this is has had consequences with regards to the kinds of a uh, city that needs to be created and how infrastructure agencies should try and support the creations uh, creation of such a city so i think the long answer to the question is history clearly plays uh, an important role but in addition to history what one also finds is like i've said i think the uh, the certain kinds of claims that one finds people make to road space and which groups have those kinds of claims which modes of transport have claims that are considered important uh, are buses do public buses have those kinds of claims or is it private vehicles or do bicyclists and pedestrians have claims that are considered important on the road but in in addition to th- that also i think that what one finds is also 
this particular development agenda has also reshaped how streets should be, what is the role of, of public transport, how public transport can be improved, how our streets need to be reshaped, who can, who decides the design of our streets. So in, for example, in Bangalore, uh, when BMTC decided that they need to improve their buses or create new buses, whom are they thinking of? Um, are they thinking of, you know, in, in thinking of developing air-conditioned buses, who are the people that they think will be using those air-conditioned buses? Are they yeah. thinking of smaller buses that can go into, say, formal settlements? Or are they thinking of, you know, those kinds of choices with regards to who are the people that they would like to serve? I think all of these relate to the, the kinds of ordering of cities, the new landscapes that one finds in cities, which kind of encourage certain kinds of movement. When we look in our cities, do we see flyovers or do we see safe roads and safe pedestrian spaces? I think this is a very long answer to a, a question. I'm, I'm, uh, hopefully, your it was, your, uh, it was a very has... long question. No, no, not at all. I think this was. I mean, this was so illuminating because I think as you were speaking, I could. I mean, I could think of five questions I wanted to ask you, each of which is to do with a specific aspect. But one thing I sort of wanted to add is when you were discussing the parastatal agencies. So this was something that also sort of came about in my research. And I think a lot of people in Vidhi also wrote about it. A lot of other people in Bangalore, including I think a lot of urban like legal scholars have commented on is the lack of implementation of the 74th Constitutional Amendment, which sort of devolves powers to, you know, the third tier in the country. So along with the village panchayats who were expected to sort of manage their own affairs, you also had ward committees in the city. Interestingly enough, I don't think as many people seem to be aware of the role of ward committees within their own cities and the way in which ward committees are expected to actually be able to make plans for their wards, whether that actually includes. And ideally, I think one of the critiques I've seen in your, I think in your documentary, which I, which I will uh, talk to you about, is also just the fact that there is no political representation in parastatal agencies. The fact that the municipal corporation is where at least there are elected representatives, but parastatal agencies report to the state government directly. There is no people's representation. So... And, and a lack of not just a representative body, but like, as you mentioned, which they operate in silos, which creates bureaucratic and, you know, like very ridiculous situations, which you would, you would hope can be solved by now. But it's also very interesting to me because when I just think about political representation in India, women's political representation is shockingly low. And these are bodies that have no people's representation. So when I'm thinking about who the city is made for, when you actually start asking that question, looking at, are they thinking of children? Are they thinking of women? Are they thinking of women who live in formal settlements? Are they thinking of women with disabilities when they're actually, in fact, it almost seems like there is an absence. And this is another question that I often have, that if there are people who are supposed to be experts on the city and who don't understand how 50% of the population in the city use and live and move in the city. What is the expertise about and for? And like, and, and which again brings us back to the questions of power and domination, right? In the sense of what are the logics that sort of get reenacted over and over in this context? And um, something that you also talked about, which I found really interesting is just the role of the bus and uh, like and I wanted you to talk a little bit about your documentary the social life of, of a bus 
and i i am going to put the link in the in the readings and i first of all it was a film i watched 2 years ago and i loved it and i watched it again today and it was such a pleasure just to watch or because i think growing up in hyderabad i used to take the bus to school in high school it was a very empowering thing because it was like for the first time i could step out stand on the bus stand if i decided like i want to have ice cream with classmates i can do whatever and i will still you know find a way to get home safely and and i always and i think i grew up with a lot of respect and like a lot of appreciation and admiration for the bus services in hyderabad because where i lived it it felt like they were extremely well connected but even back then i mean around 2007 or 2008 and and when i was watching your documentary i was thinking about uh, something that one of your interviewees says she says you know in bangalore women can't stand at the bus stop without being stared at it's very difficult and i remember when i was in high school i was harassed at a bus stop it was terrifying and it was just i didn't know what to do i didn't know who to talk to because when you're young and you're in a completely public space and you don't know if you should tell another person like it's 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 also the i think the inexperience in youth and you know when you're like in 8th or 9th standard you're like completely shocked and petrified and i remember it was a day where there were no buses that evening and like there was a lot of people were waiting it was about it looked like it was going to rain and those who can afford to take an auto or a cab could do it i didn't carry money that day enough to like even take an auto home and thankfully i was privileged enough to be maybe able to afford it but i didn't have the sense at the time to do it and i kept thinking when i was watching your documentary is that there are so many things that are taken for granted in the city if you can afford to take private transport and if you are somebody who is not constantly hyper vigilant about the safety and one thing that i think i was also struck by is that this is not like a one day question right it's an ongoing everyday continuous process every time you step out every time you have to wait at the bus stand so i was sort of interested in in, in hearing your um, why did you decide to do the documentary what was it uh, on on the bus in particular and if you could speak a little bit about the experience of it because what spoke to me in those moments was also something that she also talks about is something that urban infrastructure has so little to do with not just the design of the bus and this but also the bus routes and where she uh, i think uh, she's uh, she's speaking from i think the uh, uh, the informal settlements about how buses that are put on those routes are really in bad condition and the way that the bus conductors speak to the women is so rude a, a particular type of ongoing denigration and i've often noticed this and in the sense that if you're someone being poor is like a character flaw like it's somehow like you can you can be spoken to in a demeaning manner it is so common and like and it was also sort of standing out to me in the sense of where does that come from and why do why does like a city like bangalore why do the public bus services also incorporate the very violent logics of say class caste you know misogyny and like and i i could see all of those sort of play out in the everyday interactions so i just wanted to sort to say that and also tell all the listeners to watch it it's just half an hour and it's amazing so uh, yeah i i just wanted to hear a little bit about your experience on the documentary sure um again a, a really interesting question because it's got so many aspects to it so to answer your question um uh, this time hopefully more briefly uh, what i can say is i created the film i was part of the so i i've been i have this ongoing kind of 
collaboration or I, I try to work with citizen groups and a group that I worked very closely in scripting the film and directing it was the Bangalore Bus Prayanikara Vedike. And my intention in doing this was to, I think much of academic work often speaks to an academic audience. And, and this is where academics derive their, you know, their uh, brownie points and their uh, incentives for, you know, career advancement by looking at their citation indices and, you know, how many other academics are reading and citing their work. And this is apparently the best thing that happens. And I, I think there's, there's been some pushback in, in academia uh, from that kind of approach. And they speak of the need for a wider kind of engagement. And I, my disciplinary, I've had a very disciplinary, interdisciplinary kind of uh, education and, and my doctorate work has been in an interdisciplinary field called science and technology studies uh, or science and technology and society often it's also called and, and this work has the this body of uh, of research associated with this field has tried to kind of move beyond a purely an academic orientation for towards a, a more kind of engaged academic existence where working with groups uh, with non-academics, with uh, citizen groups, with policy advocates, I, I think is is considered an important part of the kind of scholarship that we create. Making the film itself was a fascinating uh, exercise and, and something that I would like to do again at some point in the future uh, because I think it gave an opportunity to go through so many parts of the city. Bangalore is such a fascinating city in in that sense that, you know, you get to see so many, you know, I, I've written of this as it's almost like a quilt where you go to one part of the city and there's a very different kind of uh, history and uh, and politics. And then you go to another and then there's very different. Uh, and so, you know, that and that is that was really fascinating for uh, for me as a as a as a filmmaker to to try and do that. That yeah. and select places where we can look at how buses are used and uh, and yet try and make a, a a message around that. So that was one of the one of the ideas. But I think what you're saying is uh, resonates very well with the film and with my understanding because when I think when you were saying about these kinds of logics that seem to work and work to uh, marginalizing particular groups of people. I I can understand that, and I in my work also I think one of the things that uh, I find uh, I have found with regards to mobility in Bangalore is the presence of certain kinds of logics that have yeah. become very important and predominant. I mean, the logic of one important one is of this kind of technocratic logic of let's leave it to the experts; they are the ones who know how to solve issues of infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, another one which one finds even within uh, embedded within this kind of technocratic approach is a, a commercial logic, a logic that's associated with the idea that we need to make our services in, ma in many ways cost effective. Uh, yeah. And so be it bus fares or be it water supply or uh, everyone, all users uh, all citizens become users and and then become customers who are supposed to pay for the services that they provide. So the that kind of commercial logic also 
uh, I think comes with certain ideas that, you know, when it comes to bus fares, these have to be, you know, um, related. So I guess the, these become very closely tied together, these logics. And in the context of the, um, the bus transport system, the fact that being a parastatal organization, I think a downside or another consequence of being a parastatal organization is that you have a lot of functional autonomy, which is what I think engineers and, and technocrats like, that they have autonomy over the area in order to make the decisions they have to make. But it also comes with the consequence that you don't have budget, you have budgetary autonomy also. You do not receive or you do not receive much support from the government in the day-to-day functioning of your organization, because that in some sense, it goes against the constitution of a corporation. You, you know, you're creating a corporation. One of the reasons is giving that entire domain of uh, action over to this corporation and the government will not address that domain because it's yeah. being addressed right now by this specialized organization. So yeah. this kind of budgetary, uh, lack of budgetary support means that it's very open to a commercial logic associated with trying to provide services that they do not they don't have any subsidy from the government so let's pass on the the cost directly to the customer and so and that's why you know bangalore's fair fares and some have i've seen some statistics of this are one of the highest in the country because there's very little budgetary support from the government uh, that comes yeah. to uh, so this kind of commercial logic and technocratic logic kind of work together. And then the other logic that one finds is, is often what is associated as is almost a logic of worlding in some sense, that we need to make our city into this world-class city. And so be it in, in, the, in the choices of buses or in the choices of the road space or, you know, of how we redesign our street space, um, the streets along the lines of what the tender sure approach has tried to do in, in central Bangalore. And is all this idea that, oh, we need to make our cities, our city look world-class. Yeah. Uh, and so I think a combination of all of these logics has resulted in the lack of attention to a logic of citizen service, for example, yeah. or, or of the idea that you know, there's this service orientation. We need to help our citizens yeah. uh, and certainly help those who are most uh, marginalized or those who are uh, affected the most by how our city has come to be. And so provided providing those kinds of supports is clearly not predominant, at least. I, I think it exists to some extent. And yeah. this ma- manifests itself in these forms of microaggressions and, and harassments and and violences that one finds in our cities. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if I've answered your question, but... Um... No, no, you definitely have. In fact, you opened up something that is even... Which I think I've been sort of engaging with on the podcast. And as you talked about a particular type of commercial mindset and a particular shift, I think there is a, there has been a decisive shift from the notion of the welfare state, where the state will sort of provide and undertake certain sort of, you know, uh, basic public infrastructural facilities that everybody has access to as a matter of right to that of an entitlement. So when it's a right, it's it's something that you can make a claim to, which is, again, I, I'm often struck by the use of law in the way in which 
political changes constantly use laws to sort of reshape and recast specific um, i mean I, i was actually thinking about something that you talked about i mean this is the neoliberal um, approach right like the neoliberalization of a particular even the state which means that the state no longer wants to be in the business of doing any business so everything will become you know privatized and then the private the market uh, is supreme and the market logics are the most efficient ways despite the fact that there exist countless examples of how they don't necessarily work in many many contexts especially in the context of um critical infrastructural facilities whether it's water supply or electricity or you know public bus services again we see that what is prima facie neutral is actually not neutral at all and in this season actually i was talking to somebody who runs a library and somebody who's worked with public parks and even there is an erosion of the notion of public so what is public is public something that you have to pay a premium to access has our imagination of the public firmly shifted to a place where if you can't afford to pay you can't access it and there is a particular form of enclosure of space that also constantly happens so i i can't think of i don't actually know many spaces in bangalore where you can just go without spending money where you can loiter you can take your family you can you know just i don't know do whatever and we talk a lot about pleasure or leisure in the city and this is also very interesting and sort of fits with a particular form of thinking right that okay it does make sense that uh, services should be able to pay for themselves but at what cost and in, and what are those social contracts that now are being rewritten and how much of citizen um of consent or like participation exists in in these changing policies and who are these groups who get to sort of reshape that space and so i was actually just really intrigued because uh, so in the season i'm actually talking to a lot of people who work on this concept of the public space and to me there is something very important in a constitutional point of view because our rights to equality our rights to secularism our rights to you know uh, liberty and, and even like a claim to justice can only exist if there are spaces we can actually go to where we can mingle where no barrier whether it's class caste religion gender sexuality or you know ability can mediate or prevent you from accessing and it's very well and good to have these rights on paper but ultimately the realization in the day to day lived reality has to happen in some kind of geographic space and to me the city then becomes a very prime example of how that's not happening and as you discussed in all of like throughout the throughout the episode about how the uh, structures of governance are not really realizing the constitutional vision because shouldn't ideally municipal agencies be committed to the constitutional vision of how do we make the city more equal how do we make the city more free how do we ensure that women have a right to mobility they can feel safe and you know how do persons with disabilities use the city instead it becomes about and, and, and it's also a problem of imagination right like and i think this i constantly come back to that bangalore should look like bangalore hyderabad should look like hyderabad but for some reason our imagination of what bangalore should look like has to remove ourselves out of the context to something else instead of engaging with their specific you know socio political historical context that resulted in you know a specific type of um uh this one and i i don't want to take up more of your time but i was just hoping the last couple of questions i sort of had for you is 
yeah so the one question i sort of had was about your research on gen and urm because i think one thing that like uh, the gen and urm was a was a flagship sort of program that the central government had launched and it's also very unique because it sort of had to do with urban infrastructure and now what we discussed there are three levels of governance in the country there is the central level you have the state level and you have the city level so it was very interesting to me to sort of see how do those three sit with each other what did gen and urm sort of create because i've seen some critiques of some of the aspects that you were discussing about balancing books becoming a priority ensuring that agencies that were working in the city sort of work in a particular model so i was just hoping you could talk a little bit about your research on on that sure but before i do that i'll just come back to the point that you were making which is uh, which was really interesting um uh, with regards to the kind of constitutionality of uh, of urban space and 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 that i think was is a great point that you made and i think i kind of briefly talk about this also to uh, through two kind of approaches one was i i think i i speak of this in in the context of some work that's been done by groups like hasiru siru around um, the right to cross the road and right to mobility and and i think my my kind of take around that was was related to uh, some work that i have uh, been which i have identified with uh, which is this work by um, a scholar called langdon winner who does uh, work on the kind of politics of technology and he speaks of you know the need for thinking of technology as a form of legislation and in many ways as technology as embedding um uh, a particular kind of legal approach to society uh, or thinking of them as being analogous entities because the design of technologies in many ways reinforce particular forms of uh, of behaviors in in society so um, you know in thinking about Uh, our road spaces and mobility uh, systems that are exist those create barriers which are in many ways just as as intense or as as powerful as one would think of if uh, our constitutional system did not have fundamental rights or did not have particular uh, uh, rights associated with it and i i think it's important to kind of bear that in mind that there are you know when we think of uh, of legal systems and often of you know of technological systems they're often thought of as very different entities but you know that I may not no, that is, be the case but yeah. yeah no if i could just add something to that like thank you so much for saying that because i think it made me realize that is i've actually written a little bit about this um in the context of there are yulu bikes in bangalore so after every metro station you have like an app where you can scan and like you know it and people can use the so now you see a lot of delivery personnel using yulu bikes so it's become a b2b venture more than people using it but i was just thinking about how the people who are most reliant on cycles to actually navigate day to day are my domestic worker uses a cycle like to go to travel around the city and she doesn't have a smartphone and i it, it also made me wonder who is the cycle for if mm-hmm. smartphone access is a precondition to access a cycle who is the very clearly it's targeting a particular segment which is a smartphone owning you know and we know that there is a very clear digital gender divide like we know that even in families that own smartphones girls are not usually the people who 
you know on smartphones and this is something that sort of absolutely comes up time and again because it's also the reliance on say cctv infrastructure as like a viable solution for women's safety and which is so beautifully articulated in your documentary that there are thousands of buses in bangalore how many cctvs are you going to install and who is going to be monitoring them and if they're going to be men monitoring them how do you prevent their any you know uh, misuse or safeguard privacy concerns though i actually wanted to point out a couple of cities like for instance delhi has done making transport free for women so making public transport free which is then attacked as a way of oh but these are freebies rather than understanding that more women using the city makes the city safer which is again the lock in is also something that i was thinking of because when you prevent women from accessing the city because the city is unsafe it ends up making the city more unsafe as opposed to actually more uh, robust use of public spaces by women at different times of the day and i don't often understand what's at the heart of it because this is a very it's not that complicated to understand in that this is very clearly about um, limiting access it is not targeting the people who most need it there is a very clear apathy or a neg- like negligence or even maybe deliberate like exclusion of anybody who doesn't sort of fit a particular type of identity or social or economic location who just doesn't feature in the city and then you have these uh, things like jaywalking which sort of place all of this burden on individual pedestrian that oh you are not disciplined enough and there is like uh, yeah so i was just it, it was just sort of coming to me when you were yeah discussing it but uh, please please go ahead like yeah i just wanted to sort of add that no i uh, i think this has uh, begun another train of conversation with i, I think is, yeah. is is great um uh, because i i you're right i think some my work has has looked at these particular kinds of logics of uh, of uh, of automobility uh, and how you know these logics of of kind of a technocratic approach or a, a logic a commercial logic or a welding logic has all kind of con- has reinforced the existence of this automobility kind of paradigm on streets and and i think in my work we've looked at a few cases and i work in in the film as well as in the book um you know uh, like for for instance the the decision by the bmtc to prioritize ac buses now Yeah. by by itself the ac buses might have been okay but what has also happened in the context of you know budgetary shortfalls and things like that is non ac buses are often not purchased uh, or there's been and so and then there have been particular practices of how they are run so you know you in peak hours you have only ac buses in particular routes and so then there's overcrowding on the non ac buses and you know what happens when there's overcrowding and women are often face a lot more harassment you know it's unsafe for women to travel on the footboard um uh, if there are children there you know all of these kinds of uh, these factors are complicated and then when when you face these kinds of situations on an ongoing basis then you make decisions about maybe it's safer for me to buy a private vehicle and travel by a private vehicle and so net result what you have is people deserting public transport and going towards private um, yeah. uh, vehicles which actually you know yeah, uh, contribute to the yeah contributes Contrib- to the lock in of the of yeah. automobility and so those kinds of things uh, have happened but they're also you know the uh, it's uh, it's not just you know, on on 
within the bus system, it's also, you know, bus conductors. Um, there are women bus conductors who are, who are also subjected, subjected to forms of harassment. And, um, yeah. uh, and this, you know, you can also trace this back to the, the, some of my interviews with the BMTC union and with other employees have spoken mm-hmm. of, you know, the consequences of this commercial logic within um, how um, uh, crew and staff are treated yeah. um, uh, uh, with regards to their fair targets and, you know, the need for, you know, people. Some have spoken of, you know, the inspectors um, uh, or the depot managers often, you know, physically searching conductors for uh, for money if they haven't met the the fair targets and you know th- those kinds of things are also related to the how mobility you know that that in turn contributes to how um, the crew interact yeah. with uh, with the passengers because you know the the their pressures on the on on individuals to perform to a particular level within the organization so i i think they're all very closely intertied yeah. um, no, no, absolutely. Uh, and and difficult to kind of tease apart, but yeah. um, uh, but uh, now getting back to the the question yeah, that you had about Jane yeah. and URM, yeah. um, uh, uh, I I think my my work um, uh, with regards to Jane and URM has been around the uniqueness of this this particular model of this kind of massive enterprise, and I think. Jane and URM has been a precursor to what has happened since then of the, you know, the smart cities mission. You know, there, there have been these massive centrally, um, central projects, uh, union government projects that have been rolled out nationally and have been tied to particular reform conditionalities, but also have been um, uh, created with particular kinds of strategies and techniques of, um, uh, of governance, of um uh of kind of uh um what's the word that i'm missing here um uh kind of strategies with where we try to make sure that there is transparency built into the system or uh, or um uh, might have been uh, you know those might have been have some uh, positive outcomes associated with but what has also happened is that it has created opportunities for consultants to prescribe particular kinds of how these strategies need to be implemented. Those strategies become then the important thing that individuals need to check box and check mark. So, you know, participation, if that's a check mark, then we, what do we need to do to, to get that kind of participation? We create a, a venue and invite, you know, random people, whether that's actual genuine participation, is that actually the kinds of consultation that you need with regards to the um, uh, the infrastructures that are being developed, is often not the case. Where you know, uh, at least in the case of the Jane and URM, some others have written about this. Uh, there's this interesting work by a, a scholar some years ago, um, Karen Colo, uh, and a few others have written the book called Participolis, which looks at the the kind of institutionalization of participation in in these urban transformation projects and how uh, and the consequences that they have had uh, with regards to the plans that have been created or the the projects that have been launched so i i think my my approach uh, has been with regards to the the kinds of you know this top down kind of yeah institutionalization of jn and urm and uh, i i think you know 
this needn't have been the only way that we could have thought about this. And you mm-hmm. had mentioned this in your uh, initially also about the fact that, um, you know, the 74th constitutional amendment and the, and the existence of what committees and other forms of, you know, local uh, grassroots decision making and, and city making that can uh, that could have happened. And those kinds of things, unfortunately, have not been uh, 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 tried. And in in the, its context, there has been um, a further kind of centralization of how urban projects and uh, urban infrastructure development can happen. The kinds of infrastructure priorities are often dictated by other kinds of considerations rather than locally uh, local considerations that could have been you know, um, uh, gathered together, consolidated, and then uh, and yeah. designed. And then, like you said, uh, these could have been approaches to kinds of designing of uh, cities, designing of infrastructures, de- uh, designing of mobility systems with a, with uh, logics that are uniquely um, related to the, the the context of those cities. And yeah. unfortunately, those have not been tried in our. I mean, if we can't have Bangalore city, uh, a, a Bangalore with its infrastructures that are in, in in many ways designed and suited to the the considerations that we have as a society or as as a polity. Then, I mean, that's that's really unfortunate. That it shows a kind of poverty of uh, in our a real po- poverty in our designs and our and our decisions. That we have to look towards these other uh, contexts with their particular factors that have re- uh, resulted in those um, in those uh, uh, infrastructures, and then import those kinds of designs and yeah. solutions to our um, to addressing our infrastructure. No, uh, absolutely, issues. yeah. I think uh, you know this was extremely illuminating, and I was just thinking that the one aspect we didn't really touch in the conversation was even in the context of sustainability. What I find fascinating is with the with climate change and every report that portends more depressing news about the state of affairs and the urgent need for cities to become sustainable. There is such a push to also shift towards public transport to reduce the carbon footprint of cities. Which, on one hand, you have agencies and like trying to make climate plans and like for the city to make a climate plan. And at the same time, as you described, the automobility infrastructure that sort of exists as a as a way of continuing to sort of solve the same problem with which is in ways that exacerbates the problem. And I was actually thinking about how in the middle of this was also like a lot of like technical solutions or technocratic solutions even for climate adaptation or climate change, which don't even consider how people use and like inhabit the city. And I was just thinking as you were speaking about is uh, one of the things that sort of starkly stood out to me in my research was just the absolute lack of consideration of the domestic economy in a lot of these plans. Like, I, I just didn't hear anybody talk about, oh, how are people going to school? Or like, where are the hospitals? If a woman is being, uh, I don't know, abused at home, is there a way in which she can step out? What is, what is the quickest way to actually protect women, you know, in their homes, outside their homes? Because all of these require infrastructure, right? Where are shelters in the city? Are there women's shelters? Are there homeless shelters? Are there resting spaces? I found it extremely fascinating because I walk a lot in Bangalore. It is so rare to find a bench in the city. Mm. Like I can still see the one or toilets, but like just a bench to sit down. And uh, I, I, 
Uh, sorry, I don't mean to cut, cut you no, off, no, but you know, speaking of benches, I, 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 I think I've taken a photograph in my in my archive somewhere. There is a photograph of a bench of of these kinds of furnitures, and and the back of the bench had this enormous advertisement that was. Um, uh, but it, those benches are there if they are sponsored by yeah. corporate uh, actors, yeah. and it's if they so, are not there, those benches don't exist. Yeah. Um, so I think my last question was, given all of your work, where do you see pathways out of attempting to come out of the lock-in? What would be good practices in the existing? Is there a way, do you see moments or glimpses of, you know, of hope or of, of potential, I don't know, mobilization? Or what do people who are listening to this podcast start engaging with? Uh, I, I think it's a that's a great question, and that re, that points towards some research that I'm currently engaged in, which looks at uh, how do one how do we transition away from these contexts of automobility, and this is again something that many scholars in in the Western context have been doing, and there's there's a healthy industry, academic industry on on sustainability transitions with several you know enormous citations associated with it and but i i think it's it those have been those kinds of uh, that academic field has a very uh, uh, a eurocentric kind of approach and that may or may not be appropriate and i think what we need to be thinking of in thinking of these kinds of questions of transitioning or or uh, is to recognize that we are in a state of a particular kind of lock-in, a very powerful lock-in that seems to persist despite our best efforts to try and uh, and kind of price it open. Uh, and, and so I think recognizing that, that this kind of lock-in has happened because of a particular kind of political constellation requires thinking, imagining, and and potentially uh, envisioning and, and designing an alternate kind of mobility constellation, a mobility constellation that has a particular kind of politics associated with it. And, and so what I have, at least in the book, when I've ended, um, I speak of displacing automobility. And I, I say, I think, you know, what we have done so far is look at what are the ways that in which automobility has been put together. So these kinds of uh, particular forms of automotive citizenship, forms of privileged kind of automotive landscapes um, or this kind of automotive ordering of of cities and streets that has happened, I think in order to um, uh, envision a a displacement of automobility, one needs to think of how can we think of uh, efforts of mobilization that can, um, um, for instance, Force the the reshaping of our cities into different kinds of things. So one thing I I kind of point towards um, uh, in in the book, but you know again I I haven't really looked at it too carefully is the protest that was there against the steel flyover in Bangalore, um, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and that I thought was quite heartening because it seemed like there was a kind of a cross class. Uh, kind of coalition of groups that were coming together in in not just they were not like um, a middle class oriented group saying oh we've had enough of flyovers um, uh, it was also you know alternatives that were offered uh, which were considered which were you know pro poor and and 
uh, seemed to indicate a different kind of politics. Another kind, uh, uh, another um, uh, alternative to this thinking of an um, uh, alternate mobility system might be of thinking of alternate claims to the street and how those, what kinds of acts um, of reclaiming streets do we need to do? And then I think here, I think, you know, looking at um, feminist movements and, you know, which speak of taking back the night and, and kind of acts of loitering and, and reclaiming streets, those may have uh, uh, solutions to the kinds of uh, efforts to reclaim and, you know, the right to cross streets. You know, our children need to be able to be able to cross streets in a in a matter that they they seem much more safer. So that you know, parents are not sitting um, wondering if they'll be able to see their children when they come back from school. So, uh, what do we think of doing that? And when it comes to these landscapes, I think there one finds in in some neighborhoods in Bangalore. You know, people have. And this I thought was an interesting, you know, there was this um, uh, this this wonderful neighborhood in Ashoknagar, uh, which very, you know, it wasn't a wealthy neighborhood, uh, but at the same time, it was it was a bustling neighborhood with, you know, people, ch- kids playing on the street, shops with several shops, and you know, people sitting on 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 benches, you know constructed, you know, you know, the kinds of benches that people construct in their neighborhoods, um, not fancy ones, maybe on on bricks and, you know, and having a, a talk. And, you know, it, was, it seemed like a very uh, welcoming neighborhood to be living in. And what was interesting was there was no thoroughfare of, of traffic on those roads. And how they had accomplished that was by kind of creating a sheltered space by by putting in uh, in these concrete poles on the road space in order to prevent automobile traffic from entering, so the entering that space, and so those kinds of solutions. I mean, they seem very small right now, but if you know people could through ward committees or through create forms of barriers for and create spaces that are sheltered from these kinds of logics of automobility, then those might be spaces of hope there. But I I mean, so far, those are very marginal and very small. And now that I've said Ashoknagar, maybe that will become (laughs) (laughs) overrun with going there. I know there are several other spaces like this. Yeah, no, I can, I can. No, but thank you so much. That That's actually, that, that, that was so delightful. Even when you were just describing the neighborhood, it made me smile. Like it just seems so like some far distant nostalgic past, the existence of children playing on the streets. Um, but I think with that, I actually just wanted to add one last thing for the listeners of this podcast, because you, you mentioned why loiter or taking back the night as, as some form of feminist incursions into space. In fact, for me, this entire, the genesis of this project actually started when I um, heard of the Priyanka Reddy case. It was a very gruesome, uh, brutal sexual violence and murder uh, case in Hyderabad, where a young veterinarian was uh, murdered. She had parked her bike near a flyover. And I was very interested in the location, both in the Priyanka Reddy case, which happened in 2017, as well as the Nirbhya case, which happened in a bus in Delhi, right? And there was something very interesting to me about both of these two cases, which had very, very large public outcry. I mean, everybody knows after the Nirbhaya case, there were massive protests and a change to the criminal law. And after the Priyanka Reddy case, there was actually um, 
Hyderabad police engaged in extrajudicial killings of the accused and they were celebrated for it. So there were criminal, very swift, patently illegal and unconstitutional actions that took place. But I felt like not enough scrutiny was placed just on the existence of these spaces in the city that were so unsafe that something like this could even was even possible. And I wanted to sort of add that I think it's very important for all the people listening to the podcast and also young women in particular to also expand the feminist project, not just to the existence of safe neighborhoods, but the larger politics of urban infrastructure. Because I think these are the conditions that create possibility of horrific violence. And the solutions don't engage with the politics of urban infrastructure at all, because that's an ongoing thing. And we only see the manifestations, you know, every once in a while when there is such a huge public uproar. And so that was, I know this was sort of a dark uh, point to end the conversation on, but it's such a delight to speak with you, Dr. Gopakumar. I mean, it is, I mean, this is, it's been a complete pleasure and, and thank you so much for speaking with me and, and for your work. And yeah, I'm going to include all your uh, readings and, and the work of the organizations you mentioned, Bangalore, Bhaspranik, Rivediki. And, and uh, if you're a resident of Bangalore and you want to get involved in urban politics, this is maybe a good starting point for you to you know, engage with it. So thank you so much, Dr. Gopakumar. Okay, no, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much.